I'll be reading this morning from 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And I'll pray. Lord, we're very grateful for all that you have revealed to us in your word. There's no way that, that we could have come to these things on our own. We walk in darkness apart from the revelation of the light of truth through your word. And so we want to receive, Lord, from you. We humble ourselves, God, to be taught of you and pray that through your word and the working of your spirit that you would find us malleable, Find us ready to receive, and that you would bring us into greater conformity to your Son, Jesus. In his name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as you know, spiritual gifts are a big deal in the New Testament, especially to Paul. Four times in the New Testament, Spiritual gifts are listed, and now three chapters devoted to that topic here in 1 Corinthians. But like every other topic that Paul has raised to the Corinthian church, they've messed things up. And it's largely, if not solely, due to their emphasis and focus on self rather than dying to self and allowing the cross of Christ to be manifest in their lives. They have adopted an attitude of superiority, of spiritual maturity and spiritual victory, which has nothing of humility in it. It's all about their rights. It's all about themselves. 
and it has no regard, their thinking has no regard for other people or for a right assessment even of themselves. So every topic that Paul has raised here to the Corinthian church in one way or another comes back to the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. That it is not about us. We die to self, even as Christ died, giving him his life for us. So to drive that point home, because this church has gotten caught up in one gift in particular, the gift of tongues. Because as you look at all the gifts, it would seem that the gift of tongues appears at least to be the most sensational and therefore the most spiritual. We make the same mistake today. We are so prone to think that where there is great activity, God is doing great things. That where there's a lot of noise and excitement, the Spirit is strongly at work. I know one person who, who, in fact, left this church to go to a, a strongly charismatic church, and her reason for doing so is because the Spirit was more present among them than among us, based upon how they worship on Sunday morning. She could be right. But I think there's a fatal flaw in thinking that much activity and noise and excitement equates with the Spirit's work. What equates with the Spirit's work is not spiritual gifts, and certainly not tongues. But rather, Paul's going to say, the evidence of love among you. And the heart of love is a concern for others ahead of self, or humility. And we can have great gifts individually and characterize us corporately, and get all caught up in the greatness of the gift, and we are not loving one another as God has called us to. And so that's what this love chapter is about. It stands on its own. I mean, and many people, we've heard, we've read it all our lives, maybe memorized it. It's one of the best-known chapters in all of Scripture. It truly stands on its own. But Paul didn't write this chapter to have it just be an isolated chapter on love. It is sandwiched between two chapters that are isolated about spiritual gifts, that are focused on spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, no matter how much we may be endowed by God, blessed by God, gifted by God, none of those gifts, apart from love, mean anything. So Paul jumps into this and he says, I... Last verse of chapter 12, I will show you a more excellent way, a way more excellent than the gifts, and that is love. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, we don't know if there are two different kinds of, there are many kinds of tongues, we know that, but whether he actually knows what the gifts, the tongues of angels are, we don't know. He may have just been assuming, probably correctly, that angels speak a different language in heaven than we speak here on earth. I have a Jewish friend that says the language of heaven is Hebrew. I'm hoping it's Texan. But But whatever language, whatever tongue you may have, if you do not have love, then that language, that tongue 
is nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Those are two instruments I think I could play. <laughs> I'm never going to play the guitar, never going to play the piano. And I'm not sure I could even play the gong or the cymbals unless somebody stood next to me and said, hit it now. <laughs> but that's all you got to do is hit the thing, right? Hit the, the gong, clang the cymbals. I think I could do that. You, nobody is going to compose a song or a symphony that has only a gong. I've heard some, some amazing music with only a guitar or only a piano. But I've never heard a song composed only of a gong or even of a pair of cymbals. It's pretty worthless, those two instruments alone. And any spiritual gift without love, Paul's saying, is pretty worthless. Pretty powerful illustration there. Some believe that Paul may have been making reference even to the pagan worship services, which had a lot of cymbal banging and gong hitting. Their pagan worship services were not with multi-stringed instruments, apparently. Just clashing cymbals and hitting gongs together. And that's interesting that he would say that without love, your spiritual gifts are no different than what the pagans are doing. And when you think about it, there is no spiritual gift that is not in some way duplicated or counterfeited by unbelievers, including the gift of tongues. We'll have more to say about tongues, especially in chapter 14. But one thing we need to know from the beginning, it is not unique to Christianity. Simply is not. So it is not in itself a mark of spirituality. Neither is prophecy. Neither is teaching, administration, helps. None of these things are unique to Christianity had a student from Uganda that was with us many years ago, Gerald Seriaji, and Gerald told me that um, it was he saw in Uganda demon-possessed people speaking in tongues. So to say that tongues is a unique Christian experience is just far from the truth. There is no pagan religion that does not have some kind of ecstatic utterance. They all do. But Paul's point is, without love, no matter how valid your gift may be, it doesn't distinguish itself from being any different than what the pagans have. Noisy gong, clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries... And all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. In verse 1 he says, I have become a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. In verse 2, I am nothing. Where do we get our identity? 
And if our identity is coming from spiritual gifts, and those spiritual gifts aren't being exercised in the context of love, then we are nothing. Nothing. You cannot take your identity from the spiritual gift that God has given you. Because without love, we are nothing. I have become a noisy gong, clanging symbol. I am nothing. Even if I were to give all my possessions to feed the poor, philanthropy, and if I delivered my body to be burnt, martyrdom, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. A person can give every cent he has and do it for the sake of what others would say about him, for the praise of men, for the love of self, and not in the least be motivated by love for others. A person could even conceivably give his life, and what motivates him again is what other people think, rather than love for others. It's amazing the lengths that we could go to, even to the point of martyrdom, because we're more concerned about what others think about us than of actually serving them sacrificially. We want the recognition, we want the reputation, and it's not about serving others selflessly. In these first three verses here, Paul is clearly talking about how important love is, the priority of love over spiritual gifts. And later he's going to say that the spiritual gifts, as sooner or later, and it's very debatable about when the sooner or later is, but the spiritual gifts are going to pass away. But love will endure. These first three verses are about the importance, the priority of love, or even has been described the indispensability of love. And then he's going to give some characteristics of love, and then he's going to finish this chapter with talking about the permanence of love. Love is a big deal. One writer, in summing up these first three verses, says, If Paul were addressing the modern church today, perhaps he would extrapolate further and say something like, You Christians who prove your spirituality by the amount of theological information you can cram into your heads, I tell you that such knowledge by itself proves nothing. And you who affirm the Spirit's presence in your meetings because there is a certain style of worship, if your worship patterns are not expressions of love, you are spiritually bankrupt. You who insist that speaking in tongues attests to a second work of the Spirit or a baptism of the Spirit, I tell you that if love does not characterize your life, there is not even evidence of a first work of the Spirit. He goes on to say, In none of these instances of the things he lists in these first three verses does, does Paul depreciate spiritual gifts but he refuses to recognize any positive assessment of any of them unless the gift is discharged in love. Therefore, any gift, any particular gift is dispensable, 
so far as spiritual profit or attestation of the Spirit's presence is concerned. But love is indispensable to proving the presence of the Spirit of God at work among us corporately. Love is a big deal. It is a much bigger deal than the spiritual gifts. You may not know what your spiritual gift is. You don't need to know. But we do need to be characterized by love in all that we do. And now beginning in verse 4, he's going to say, well, let me describe love to you. This is not a definition, it's a description, it's characteristics of love, and it's not exhaustive. I don't, just as the list of spiritual gifts is not exhaustive, this isn't an exhaustive list of what love is like. For example, other parts of Scripture say that love covers a multitude of transgressions, but this list doesn't say that. And so we know that love is more than what's listed here. This is a big enough list. <laughs> Starts with love is patient. Who wants to be graded on that? And if it were, you know, all pass, all fail kind of test, you get it 100% right or you fail, then the very first characteristic of love, patience, in our own, we would fail. This is. This is the love that only God can express within us. A big deal is made um, about that this is agape love, the Greek word for love. Actually, I've come to learn in the last few years that evangelicals have probably made too big of a distinction between the different kinds of Greek words for love. Agape love, phileo love, eros love. Because as you look at those words carefully as they're used throughout the Bible, they're used very interchangeably. The love, suppose love, that um, Ammon had for his half-sister Tamar was an incestuous love. And yet the Hebrew, when translated into Greek, that is referred to as agape love. When Demas left Timothy left Paul, and, and, and Paul says he left because he loved the world. The word for love there is agape. So these words are, have more fluidity to them. They're more interchangeable than, than sometimes we've been led to believe. The point here is that this kind of love being described can only originate from God. Paul could have used phileo it, and, and used these characteristics, and we still would come to the same conclusion, only God is the originator of these kinds of love, of these, these characteristics of love. We can't self-produce these things. You can't type these things out and put them on the refrigerator and memorize them and have this produced in your life. God has to do it. Love is patient. Why did God give us this list? So we don't deceive ourselves and think, I'm a pretty loving guy. You know, it's been two days since I last got angry. <laughs> Man, I'm doing good. And so God says, we're going to bring some reality into your life. Love is patient. This word usually suggests not merely the willingness to wait a long time, 
which would be nebulous, right? You're in the car waiting for your wife. What is a long time? For me, it's a couple minutes. For others of you, you could just sit out there and take a nap and you'd just be as happy as ever, right? How do you qualify what a long time is? It's more than just the willingness to wait a long time or endurance of suffering, but it speaks to more the idea of the willingness to endure injury without retaliation. It is a long holding out of one's mind before it gives room to action or passion. It is the steadfast spirit which will never give in. The idea of the word is that it takes a long time before fuming and breaking into flames. When you begin to see these characteristics of love expressed in you, you will be surprised because it is so uncharacteristic of you. We each have that opportunity in our lives as we abide in Christ and yield to him and say, God, I cannot love as you love. You have to do this. Romans 5 tells us the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. God, who is love, lives in us. So everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ and has Christ living in him can see this fulfilled in his life. As he yields to Christ, chooses Christ, abides in Christ, makes himself a vessel for Christ, supernaturally, the Lord will make these things true in him. When Patsy and I were um, engaged, and there were a couple occasions, and one of the things an engagement does is kind of solidify for you whether this is the right choice or make make me think, what am I doing? I need to get out of this before it's too late. And I had dated um, other women before dating Patsy and, and, and getting engaged, and and there have been different times when I had been, I'd felt hurt and I'd gotten offended. Um, I'd felt slighted, maybe disrespected. And um, that was the end of it. Just a switch flipped off and I'm going, see ya. And, you know, and I wasn't that callous about it, but basically something in my heart said, this is never going to work. Patsy and I were engaged and there were a couple of different times when I said something that, that hurt her, she said something that hurt me. And that switch didn't get flipped off. And I'm thinking, this is not normal. Because in the past, I would just stop. My heart would just stop. But my heart's not stopping anymore. Her heart's not stopping anymore. Remember, she made this big, almost life-size doll, huge thing. And I saw it and and I thought this was maybe her, her first home ec project, you know, when she was in junior high or something. And I made some comment about the doll because she wanted to bring it, you know, you know, with us when we got married or something, you know, be part of our household. And I'm thinking, I've seen a lot better <laughs> dolls before. And I made the mistake of, of, of making some comment about it. And, and, and she goes, and she got a little, little touchy. And I go, well, sweetheart, it's okay just to admit that you messed up. And um, <laughs> young and dumb. That's when the young and dumb. 
And she, and, she's, and she looked at me with, through kind of gritted teeth and said, I didn't mess up. <laughs> and she was patient with me. And she forgave me. And I never talked about that doll again. <laughs> Love is kind. Love is kind. We've all heard the saying, truth hurts. And when you're on the wrong side of the truth, it hurts. When you're on the right side of the truth, it never hurts, right? Truth only hurts when you're on the wrong side of it. And love will speak the truth. Paul says to the Ephesians, speak the truth in love. So you know in speaking the truth, you have the great risk of a person getting hurt. Love doesn't refuse to speak the truth. But love spends a long time praying about how can I speak the truth in such a way as to take away as much of the sting as I can. It's called tact. That's something that, again, we have to come before the Lord with. I'm not gifted in tact, as you, I just explained with my doll story with my wife. I remember in high school there was a one of my best friends, we were both part of the same youth group, he was getting a lot of attention from the youth leaders, husband-wife team, and they liked him, and, and the wife would tease him and, 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 and just you know, give him attention, which he didn't want. And he would tell me privately how much he hated coming to that youth group because of that wife giving him attention. High school kids, a lot of times, just want to be part of the, you know, the the furniture, and not be noticed. And he did not want to be noticed. And his words to me about her were far from charitable. And so he got colder and more distant, and she couldn't help but recognize. And so as one of his best friends, she asked me one time, is there a problem between me and, and your friend? And what am I going to say? Am I going to quote him? No way. That wouldn't be kind. It would be true, but it wouldn't be kind. And so I can't quote him, and I'm standing there going, what do I say to this? I can't lie. And I remember just as I, as, just many times, we've all had the experience, you just go, Lord, help me. And, and I found the Lord leading me to say, you know, he's just not quite comfortable with the amount of attention that he's getting. And it still stung her, but it was not said in harshness. It was, I, didn't, I didn't quote the guy. I couldn't have done that. It would have been way brutal. And God gave me kindness in speaking the truth. It goes such a long way. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Keep in mind that God... One of the attributes of God is jealousy. God is love, and God is jealous. In fact, he says in one place that his name is jealous. But the point is, is that God is never jealous of us. He is jealous for us. Total different concept. 
Paul is saying love is not jealous of a person. But love will be jealous for people. A parent is jealous for their children. That there not be some ungodly influence that would take their hearts away from Christ. That's a good, godly kind of jealousy. The Corinthians were jealous of each other. Some had the gift of teaching. Some had the gift of mercy. Some had the gifts of tongues. And those that did not have the gift of tongues were jealous of those that did. And they wanted it. There is great inequality. We know our Constitution tells us all men have been created equal. And that is true in terms of our humanity. But that's about as far as it goes, isn't it? We may have equal rights and we have the same humanity, but there is nothing else that is the same or equal between us. Different abilities, different blessings. I have a young friend that on occasion he'll send me an email and sadly it is predictably very, very negative. When his life has become so crushing that he can't stand it anymore, um, he'll write me. And he has a very difficult life. And I recently received one of those emails and wrote him back, trusting God for patience, for kindness, not to crush him. The bruised reed he does not break, the smoldering wick he does not put out. And yet writing him and saying, you know, if you knew how much others are suffering, because it seems like right now you're only thinking about your suffering. If you knew how much others suffered, if you knew how much I suffered, I think it would help alleviate, and I didn't use the word jealousy, but alleviate the, the pain that you're feeling. Because oftentimes behind a lot of the grief that we have over our circumstances is because we're looking around and don't see other people going through the same circumstances, isn't it? How can I suffer this much when others don't seem to suffer one bit? Love is not jealous. But love would say, thank you, God, that that person has it better than I do. I rejoice with them. Love isn't envious. Life is filled with inequalities and love recognizes it and is content with its lot. John the Baptist was content to decrease. Jonathan was content to lose the throne. Neither was envious. I've said before, it's a lot easier to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. It's supernatural to rejoice with those who rejoice. But love is not jealous. Love does not brag. We Texans like to brag. We're known for it. Everything's bigger and better in Texas. I can't tell you how many times I've, heard, I've been told that when I've traveled to other states and other countries. Oh, you're from Texas. Everything's bigger and better. 
What happened to you? Why are you so short? <laughs> yeah, 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 I've heard that, heard it before. Love does not brag. We have to be careful here because a, a young child in the innocence and purity of that child's heart will joyfully tell you what it has accomplished or even what it got. I remember at Christmas as a kid, as soon as everybody had finished opening up their presents, and I'm speaking the whole block, not just the family. And, you know, about the same time as almost like all the families had a, had, a, had a signal, front doors would open up and kids would come pouring out of their houses with all their new gifts, bicycles, skateboards, footballs, whatever. And there was real joy, as I remember, going around from house to house and looking at what people got, rejoicing in it, not being jealous, and yet wanting to eagerly show the neighborhood kid what you got. And I think it brought some delight to the parents because the parents want their kids to enjoy and to rejoice in what they've been given. That's not a bad thing. But somehow when you get older, and maybe the heart is still just as pure and simple, you just want to rejoice in what God has done you find you have to sometimes keep it to yourself because other people hear it as bragging. Love is not self-centered. Bragging is self-centered. And love is not self-centered. Its interest is in other people. Love is not arrogant, meaning it is humble. It recognizes that God is the source of all that is good. It doesn't consider self to have loved better than another. That's one area where arrogance comes out. I've loved you better than you've loved me. Really? Listen to what you're saying. We all fall short. No one has loved perfectly other than God himself. And when we get in that zone of, I've loved you better than you've loved me, we are in a bad place. If it were true, we wouldn't say it. If it were truly loved, because that's becoming arrogant. And it's arrogant to think that I've done better than someone else, especially when this love This quality of love is truly God's love. How can I boast in it? How can I use it to accuse someone else of their failures? Love does not act unbecomingly or rudely. It does not behave improperly toward others. There's an old saying, you can spot a gentleman not by the way he addresses his king, but how he addresses his servants. One of the Proverbs says, the poor man utters supplications. The rich man answers roughly or rudely. You can afford to be rude if you have nothing to lose and you have all the power. 
Humility says, I have no power. And I have nothing except what I've received. And so humility will encourage you and move you to speak in a way that is not rude, to act in a way that is not unbecoming. We train our children to not act up in public. It's hard sometimes to get that across. And there's different ways that we'll try to encourage them. And as they get older, we hope that we can just, they would simply be motivated by, this does not please me. And that should be enough. Because love does not act unbecomingly. Does not act rudely. And if it doesn't please you, another person, that is reason enough to change your behavior. Love does not seek its own. Love not merely does not seek that which does not belong to it. It is prepared to give up for the sake of others even what it is entitled to, as one person said. It does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. It doesn't have a bad temper. It's not easily angered. It isn't touchy. Some people are like a cactus. You can't even come close to it without getting poked. It's touchy, irritable, short-tempered. Love is not provoked means it doesn't have a blistering temper hidden beneath a respectful facade just waiting for an offense, real or imagined, at which to take umbrage, to take offense. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't have a file of personal grievances that can be consulted and nursed whenever there is a possibility of some new slight. Love stores up no resentment and bears no malice, is what that's getting at. Jesus came into this world, and Paul writes and says that not counting their trespasses against them. And love does not take account of wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It doesn't enjoy endless discussions about what is wrong with churches and institutions and Christians. Hates talking about those things. And only takes up those subjects when they have to be taken up. Doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness probably means that it's not prone to gossip. To be talking about other people's failures so as to bring them down. Again, sometimes there is a context where we have to to address things that are unpleasant to talk about. But love doesn't rejoice in seeing and knowing that these things are true. You can't be a pastor or an elder of a church and not hear about things that you wish you'd never heard about. Come to see things in people's lives that you would have never imagined were true. It's unavoidable to hear about the unpleasant, 
ugly realities in people's lives. But love never rejoices in those things. Love rejoices with the truth. It does not seek to make itself distinctive by tracking down and pointing out what is wrong. It gladly sinks its own identity to rejoice with what is right and good and true. Love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It's unconditional. It forgives 70 times 7. Love believes all things. That doesn't mean that love is gullible. It doesn't mean that, that, that love is not discerning. Love believes all things. I believe what Paul's after is love is optimistic. Love is, is hopeful. Love is prone to, to look at the best and to believe the best and is not quick to believe what is not true. This is again where husbands and wives can be of great help to each other because as we relate our trials and, our, and, and grievances and, and things that have gone on to each other, it's very helpful to have a spouse that can say, I think you're taking the worst possible construction here. I think that you're reading into their motives and something that may not be true. Love believes all things. In other words, it believes the best. It's not quick to believe the worst. We can know people so well that we can think, we know their hearts, we know their motives because we've known them for so long and we've seen so much ugliness that we can get to where we think that we know exactly why they're doing what they're doing. We might be right, but love believes the best. No matter how much ugliness we've seen, how predictable we may think a person is, love believes the best. Love hopes all things. It hopes for the best, even when disappointed by repeated personal abuse. Hoping against hope. Always ready to forgive. This is why people say that when there's somebody in a family that has self-destructive behavior, whether it's alcoholism or drug addiction or whatever it might be, could be even gambling, some obsessive, destructive behavior. We talk about the family being codependent, being enablers of that person with their addiction. And how does that happen? Well, families believe the best. Families hope all things. And every time that person confesses and repents and says they're sorry, love just says, I forgive you, and believes that it's genuine. But it can happen over and over and over again. And then the last thing, love endures all things. But I think we should be careful here. It's not saying that the relationship with an, with an abusive personality can never change because of the abuse. It says the love will never change. There came a point in God's relationship with Israel and he said things can't continue this way. And for 70 years he separated himself from Israel and let them go through hell on earth so that they would turn back to him. 
He never ceased loving them. His love endured. And he spoke to that repeatedly in the prophets. He says, my covenant of love with you I have never broken. But it did come to a place where he says, we can't continue existing this way. Something has got to change. God's love was hopeful. It was enduring. But the relationship came to a point where it had to change. Love endures all things. It perseveres. When the evidence is adverse, love hopes for the best. And when hopes are repeatedly disappointed, it still courageously waits. But that's not to say that the relationship doesn't sometimes have to change. So as to, in love, help this person move away from their destructive behavior. So let me summarize some of the things here. The distinctive of God's love is that it is self-originating. God is love. He doesn't love you and me because we are lovable. God loves because God is love. I'd like to think that I'm lovable. I know I'm not always lovable. If we were to see ourselves as God really sees us, I don't think any of us could claim to think for a moment that we are lovable. We don't understand sin. We don't understand the goodness of God. We don't understand how far we fall short if we think that we are intrinsically lovable people. God loves us unconditionally, perfectly, because God is love. It should be clear that the presence of this kind of love that Paul is describing is a test, an infallible test or evidence of the Spirit's work in us. Because we can't do this. And when God's love is present and operating in us, we find ourselves being enabled by God to love people we never thought we could even be in the same room with. You go, that's, this is what is happening. And a lot of times it's in, it's in, in the rearview mirror. Because at the time we may not even realize it. And then afterwards we look back and go, that wasn't me. That was God. To love the unlovable. It is a test. These characteristics of love are evidence of the Spirit's presence. But I want you to understand This is very important here. It is not the only test. The same churches I'm hearing that emphasize the spiritual gifts and in particular tongues. Since tongues came on the scene, and and that was in 1900 in California. We'll talk about that more later. Tongues really became very prominent in in the 1960s and 70s. And those that were pushing the priority of tongues as being an evidence of the second work of the Holy Spirit, since that time, have come to better understand their Bibles. And I hope I'm being charitable. And they have realized that the Bible does not put that kind of priority. Generally speaking, most charismatics no longer put the emphasis on tongues that they once put on tongues, to their credit. Because the Bible simply would not validate that kind of emphasis. The emphasis now that I often hear from those same groups 
is on love. And so I have participated um, on one occasion with a, a charismatic pastor's conference. And, and I tell you, I was, Patsy and I, we were both blessed beyond measure by the love that was demonstrated among those people. And so that same dynamic of love is an indication of the Spirit's work among us can become the single test of the Spirit's work among us. And so in that respect, love becomes God. It's not God is love, but love has become God. And if there's love among us, we're perfect. There's more to the evidence of the Spirit's work among us than the presence of love. That is one test. It is not the only test. What about the truth? Are we staying true to the person of Jesus Christ and what the Scripture says about Him? What about the moral test? Are we walking in humble obedience to Jesus Christ? So test of the test of the Spirit's presence and the Spirit's work, love is only one of several that the New Testament gives. And it should not be become the only one. And then love becomes God. I, we, it is important to understand that if we understand love correctly, we cannot demand to be loved. Because love doesn't demand. Love is not about self and our needs. To demand to be loved is a violation of the very love that Paul describes. Love does not seek its own. To focus on how we are being loved is not the love of God operating within us. So we don't live out our married lives thinking, how am I being loved? This person is doing nothing but failing me. We don't Go to church thinking about how am I being loved? Our focus is not a love focus, even though all we're thinking about is love. Because love does not seek its own. Only God can love this way. To love, we must receive him that his love might be shed abroad in our hearts. Romans 5 says it has. We must abide in Christ that the fruit of his life would be evidenced in us. And the very first aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is love. And to be loved, to understand, to comprehend love, that too is a miracle of God's grace. Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3 that their hearts would be open to comprehend the love of God. I had a friend who spent her whole adult life working with, with kids in the public school system and that particular school she was in had a lot of, of kids that were in a foster care school and they would be released from the, from the foster home to come, work, to come to school and they were kids who had not grown up with a mom and dad. Many of them had suffered great abuse and she told me, she says, I've, I've become convinced that there are people in this world who, who can not comprehend love. They don't even know when they are being loved. And you can love them unconditionally and they cannot feel it, they cannot see it, they cannot receive it. 
I think Paul would say that as all of us. And that's why he said, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened to comprehend the love of God. And when we are focused on how we are not being loved, there's a good reason to say, God, open my eyes to how I am being loved. Like all the other virtues, love is made known in the presence of trial and of evil. To expect to experience the course, we should expect to experience the coarseness of life that the quality of God's love would be manifest through us. If love believes all things, bears all things, hopes all things, and that by definition implies there are things to believe in the face of, to hope in the face of, to endure in the face of. So it is the difficulties of life that give true love, God's love, the opportunity to be expressed. God is love, but love is not God. Seek God, and don't make love your God. How many times we've known people that if they just quit trying so hard to get a friend, if they quit trying so hard to get loved, and they just started being a friend and started loving, that they would find themselves receiving the very thing that they're seeking after. Love is not to be our goal. It is God we seek for. And finally, as I've been saying, it is biblical to pray that the love of Christ would be revealed to us. It's already been shed abroad in our hearts, but that we would have the capacity that only God can give to understand his love for us and to love others as he has first loved us. I'm not going to finish the chapter this morning. You're probably thinking, oh my word, we're going to go till two o'clock, but I'll pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for these things that you've written. They aren't meant to condemn us or to crush us, but to turn us to Jesus, to yourself, the one who is love. And I thank you, God, that there is nothing in Scripture that you exhort us toward that you aren't fully prepared and able to fulfill in us. You are yourself the dynamic for all that you demand. Thank you, God, that we can live in such a relationship with you, yielded to you, trusting you, obedient, Lord, that your very life and what is true of you can be expressed through us. I pray that we would just understand these things rightly and we would not be defining and interpreting love according to our own flesh and our needs, but according to you and what is true of you. That love is not sentimentality. Love is not so many things that Hollywood would say to us, Valentine's cards and flowers. It's much more than sentiment. It is truth It is action derived from selflessness for the good of the other with no thought to self. Thank you, Lord, for the love that you manifest to us and what you are manifesting through us. And I do pray 
that we would increasingly have your Spirit's revelation in our hearts to understand the height and depth and width and breadth of your immeasurable love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.